Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of economics, politics, psychology, history, and science. I'm Seth Rosenblatt. And I'm Mark Olbert. You know, Mark, today is our 10th podcast, so, you know, it feels like we've covered a lot of meaty topics in our first nine. That's true. We spent a lot of time talking about human psychology, how it affects our judgment and decision-making, things like hindsight bias, cognitive dissonance, herd mentality, moral hazard, and the prisoner's dilemma. And we've also discussed economic concepts like rationality, externalities, real and fake ones, public goods, friction, natural monopoly, structural unemployment, risk, and zero-sum games. This has been a lot of fun for us, but frankly, beyond that, we hope our listeners have enjoyed applying some of what we've talked about to their own decision-making process and judgment-making process. You know, about big topics like capitalism, progressivism, and conservatism, cancel culture, corruption, gun rights, and even running and serving as a locally elected official. You know, so today, Mark, we're going to do something a little different and something just for fun. And it relates to a story that when you and I were first contemplating doing this podcast, I went home and told my wife that, you know, we were considering, you know, launching this. And her first reaction to me was a comment, something like, so what are you going to call it? The angry rantings of two old white men, right? (laughs) I then tried to assure her that, no, no, these would be detailed and hopefully somewhat intellectual discussions. But it made me think that for this episode, let's do what she predicted we would do. Let's be a little ranty and have fun with it. I love the idea. There's nothing wrong with intellectual arguments, but uh, hey, a pet peeves episode where you and I just talk about things big or small that bug us, I really like that idea. They could be things related to economic psychology or anything else that we've teed up on the podcast system itself, or maybe they'll just be some random pet peeves. Right, right. And they certainly don't need to be in any order, so we'll just sort of get into it. I do want to say, if I sound a little different today, it is because I actually do have COVID, so I'm a little stuffed up, nothing too bad. I was quadruple vaxxed. Fortunately, the symptoms are pretty mild, but I may not sound uh, the way I usually do. So, Mark, my first pet peeve is a thing that came to me right after I moved to California, which was in 1993. It was the very first thing I noticed here, which was that Californians don't seem to really use their turn signals in their car. And it was weird because for a state that has such a car culture, how did so many people miss the importance of the turn signal? Because I always imagined and I learned growing up and learning how to drive that the most important thing in driving is ensuring that other drivers know your intentions. Right. Because it's hard to communicate with other cars. And so there's only a few ways to do that, one of which is your turn signal and particularly given the speed we're moving and and that sort of thing. So people don't understand that signals aren't just about other cars. Right. They're about pedestrians and bikes, too. And, you know, you may not be able to even see them. So it really bothers me that people just don't get in the habit of signaling all the time, not just when they think they need to. But every time they turn, they change lanes. I mean, I use my signal in, in and out of my driveway, right? Or if it's in the middle of the night and you don't think anyone's around, it's the only way to make it a habit. It's always bothered me. I couldn't agree more with you about that, Seth. That is a huge problem. And in fact, it's related to a pet peeve of mine. Why do so many drivers forget not only the importance of turn signals, but things like stopping at intersections, looking out for merging traffic? in parking lots once they get off the public roads. It's almost as if taking away the threat of being ticketed for a poor driving choice causes many people to forget the reason we have all those rules, which, as you were pointing out, is so that we can interact with each other and we can use a shared resource safely. It has nothing to do with the fact that, or shouldn't have anything to do with the fact that uh, you only follow the rules when you might get ticketed or, or arrested. Yeah, I guess parking lots are the Wild West of uh, driving. You know, many people forget the rules they're obeying a minute beforehand. (laughs) That's right. I often describe parking lots as impromptu intelligence tests. 
which uh, unfortunately many of us flunk badly. <laughs> okay, Mark, so let's move on to a uh, second pet peeve for each of us. Mine has to do with newspapers. And maybe that's old school. Uh, you know, I'm an old fart and I still read the newspaper. Whether Sometimes I read in paper, but sometimes I read online, but it's roughly the same structure. My peeve has to do with how they use bylines, particularly in AP articles, but in many others as well. It gives the byline up front. So it lists the city in which the story was filed. So it will say something like Bangkok, April 15th. However, often the city where the story was filed isn't the same city in which the story is about. So it's actually quite confusing. So you could read Bangkok, April 15th, and then I'm reading the first paragraph and I get to the end of the first paragraph and realize the story isn't about Thailand at all. It was about Cambodia, right? It just happened to be where the reporter was <laughs> doing the story. So it really does, like, I have to read the whole paragraph again because it just sort of, you know, confused it things. So it would seem much more logical to put the byline at the end of the story. Of course, you want to give credit to the author and even their local office. But why do you need to put it up front and make it more difficult for the reader? Just put their name and their location at the bottom of the story. Speaking of written sources of information, I really get annoyed at instruction manuals which leave out important or critical information. A lesson I learned uh, many, many years ago when I was uh, repairing cars because I was too poor to take them to a mechanic was based on instruction manuals. And I, it goes like this. No instruction manual ever contains more than 70% of what you need to know to do any given task. <laughs> Granted, that's really a problem about how much of an, a shared context you assume the, exists between the author and the reader and to what extent it does exist. So that's sort of another form of a starting point bias, right, which we've discussed in uh, previous podcasts. Absolutely. Is the reader an expert or a novice? Each demands a very different context, but most printed manuals assume just one contest, you know, probably to keep costs down and really bollocks things up. Sadly, that tradition has carried over into the online world where I frankly think it's downright silly. You know, the marginal cost of including a few extra hundred characters to provide some additional context or give people a choice about what context they want to start from is essentially zero. Yeah, it's funny. I think that's why if you look at really successful companies, they spend a lot of time doing user testing or focus groups. Um, like sometimes they'll stick someone in front of a computer or another task and actually watch them to see where they get tripped up because the people who create the products, you know, would have no idea where someone who is coming in a cold is going to get tripped up. By the way, on the other hand, you can actually have too much context in an instruction manual. YouTube videos, instructional YouTube videos drive me nuts about this. They're notorious for it. It's really common for the authors to keep distracting themselves into providing more and more context, which is less and less germane to what they're trying to do. Yeah, I definitely find that, too. I mean, I do think instructional videos are often the only place where you can get an answer because they can go into that level of detail. But they're definitely feel there's, there's always two problems with those kind of videos. Like one is that the nature of a video, it's linear. So it's hard to jump around like you can with text where you could jump to the paragraph that's relevant for you. And I think the second thing is you're right that often the instructor is spending a little more time on tangential information, like something about themselves. So more than once, I've caught myself screaming at a YouTube video like get to the point already. <laughs> Been there, done that. You know, it's why I generally I try to stay away from YouTube instructional videos at all costs unless they're an adjunct to written material. OK, so let's move on to our third pet peeve. And the one that came up for me is honestly a little wonky. So I'm going to try to just talk about it a little bit, but I actually posted an article on the resources section of our website. So if people want to learn more details about it, but it's about how we do credit ratings for general obligation bonds. And people are going to say, OK, 
what are you talking about, Seth? So let me explain briefly what I mean, because this is important because it actually this has, is more of a pet peeve because it actually has a real effect on people and the amount of money that places like cities and school districts get. General obligation bonds are bonds issued by a public agency that they receive the money for selling the bonds, but the bonds are actually paid back by a tax levied on the citizens in that district, not paid back directly by that agency. And when all bonds are issued, they need to be given a credit rating. This is related to the risk podcast we had earlier, because the credit rating has to do with the risk, which then has to do with the amount of interest that gets paid on that bond. But the rating agencies assess the credit worthiness of the issuing agency, meaning the, the credit worthiness of the school district in this case. But it's a fundamentally incorrect approach because the school district isn't the debtor. So their credit worthiness is irrelevant. So like, take an example. If our school district issues general obligation bonds, collects all the money, but then the next day shuts down, the bonds will still get paid back because the only way the bonds wouldn't get paid back is if like the entire city got swallowed up by the ocean or something and there was literally no taxpayers left. So Why this is important, even though it's very wonky, is that the bonds get a worse credit rating than they should because the credit worthiness is actually quite high, but the credit worthiness of the agency is always going to be worse than that. So what happens is the taxpayers have to pay a higher interest rate than they should. And I think the only way to fix this is actually through legislation. Well, now, hang on a second. Maybe we don't want to fix this because, you know, this is another example of humans being bad at judging risk, as we've talked about in our last podcast and touched on many times. But it's actually really good for investors because when somebody like a credit rating agency misprices a risk, that lets you buy a bond with a much higher interest rate than it should carry. So the investor is better off. You know, as capitalist pigs, I think maybe uh, that's a good thing for us. (laughs) No, I was going to say, there is an arbitrage uh, possibility here. So for an investor... A general obligation bonds are a very good investment. <laughs> Speaking of irrational ways government obligations and responsibilities get viewed by the general public, I've always been confused and surprised by how the average citizen expects governments to deal with trade-offs. Virtually everything in life involves trade-offs. You know, do you buy a more desirable but expensive car and give up that Hawaiian vacation you were thinking about? Or do you skip the car and take the vacation? We all get this. We all understand this. But for some reason, many people think it doesn't apply to choices made in the public arena by government. In fact, most people seem to assume the government isn't even resource constrained in any way. And they then tend to erroneously conclude that when their brilliant idea they have for improving the community gets rejected and not pursued, it's for some nefarious reason, you know, or motivated by spite or corruption among government officials. And as we've discussed in previous podcasts, I mean, I think, unfortunately, that's sort of ingrained in sort of the political chatter of our, you know, modern era, And even though it's ridiculous. A government, although certainly federal government could print money, but there's still constraints on what you could do, you know, certainly in the near term. And in fact, what's kind of really even more odd about this sort of viewpoint that I think many people have is even if somehow you could contemplate a government which was, in fact, able to do anything it wanted whenever it wanted, I don't know about you, but that would fill most people with dread, certainly would fill me with dread, out of fear that it would interfere with my private choices and the private sector too much. Okay, so for my fourth pet peeve, I'm going to move off the wonky into something very simple. And this has, of course, been in the news lately um, because we're contemplating getting rid of changing the clocks. Let's talk about time change. 
it is sort of this silly thing that we have done for decades, and it's really just a method to fool ourselves. And even when we don't change the clock, people argue now about whether you prefer standard or savings time, which is, of course, another ridiculous argument. The sun rises and sets at the same time, regardless of how we label the time. People say, oh, I want more light in the morning. Well, again, we define when morning is. We could just change the time of like when school starts or when work starts, you know, to have the light you want before you go to school. Right. It has nothing to do with what the clock says. Right. You know, instead of worrying about changing the time, we should just get in the habit of being more flexible on the times of activities anyway. Right. School start times could change as the year goes on, depending on daylight changes. That reminds me from a little bit broader perspective. Humans seem to be really good at fooling themselves and then patting themselves on the back for how clever they are by doing so. I think the time change thing you're talking about is a great example of that. The one that comes to mind for me in that regard is why do some of us think we can keep our kids from running into the admittedly potentially severe problems that can arise from sexual activity by keeping our children ignorant of sex? My dad used to like to say sex education was a good thing because there was no way physically sexually mature people wouldn't stumble somehow into how great a pastime it really is all by themselves without any training whatsoever. <laughs> right? But left to themselves, they probably wouldn't learn about things and understand things like how it can lead to sexually transmitted diseases and what you do about that or to wait for it, pregnancy. Yeah. And of course, there's a ton of empirical data showing that increased knowledge about sex reduces unintended pregnancies and sexually transmitted diseases. Yep. But too many of us just assume the old out of sight, out of mind approach will work just fine. And it might if sex was a horrible, unfulfilling activity. Unfortunately, evolution kind of made sure that's not the case. <laughs> that's right. Well, it's funny. This issue is also echoed in a lot of uh, recent political activities, particularly in southern states who are banning books or not allowing discussions about issues they view as sensitive. Banning a book doesn't make the issue go away. You know, it just fuels ignorance. Oh, in fact, it tends to highlight it. I, I was, I'm sure you've read the articles, too, that the the number of teenagers who were pursuing the books that were on the banned list actually went up after the banned list came out because <laughs> the greatest way to get a teenager to read something is to tell them, oh, you can't read that. Right, exactly. <laughs> My next pet peeve, number five, if you're keeping count, involves what I might call success bias and applying it far beyond where it's relevant. Joe Namath was a tremendous quarterback for the New York Jets back in the 1960s when I was a young teenager. And I still remember being boggled by interviewers asking his opinion on who would make the best U.S. president in the 1968 election. <laughs> I mean, why in the world would anyone assume that being a great quarterback made you an expert on who you should vote for? Would you hand him a scalpel if you had, I don't know, kidney stones and say, cut away, Joe? Of course not. Well, I don't know, Mark. Enough Americans thought that a fraudulent real estate mogul and reality TV host would somehow make a good president. <laughs> uh, you know, you're right. I have a blind spot there because I just was not one of that uh, select few. <laughs> I saw the same thing happen in a very different setting when I worked at Amgen, a major biotech company uh, running their financial planning function. I had joined the company and wanted to make a few changes based on what I'd learned elsewhere in about a decade's worth of work at other companies in things on like how you do budgets and financial analysis. And I was rebuffed because the changes were deemed not the Amgen way of doing budgeting and analysis. 
And I dug into it, and it turned out the reason everybody thought the, the Amgen way in finance was sacrosanct really was simply because a couple of brilliant, hardworking scientists had discovered two incredibly important and valuable, like multi-billion dollar human therapeutic proteins. And that got, you know, sort of like pixie dusted all over the entire company. <laughs> it's, it's just flat out ridiculous. So, Mark, you mentioned football. I'm actually going to give you two sports pet peeves, my number five and my number six. On football and in other sports, one thing that always bothered me, and again, it's a pet peeve because it's so silly, is the fact that on the back of the uniforms, when it says someone's last name, so you say Olbert on the back of, you know, your jersey. But if you're a junior or a third or something, they include the junior or the suffix in the name. And... <laughs> Which doesn't make any sense because a person's suffix is really part of their first name, not their last name. We just write it by convention at the end. So like we say, Henry Jones Jr., but they're not Jones Jr., they're Henry Jr. So, But yet everyone in sports will have Jones Jr. on the back of the uniform, even though their last name is Jones. So it seems like that no one in professional sports has actually figured this out. <laughs> They've been making a mistake for decades. So let me move on to pet peeve number six, which for me is also about sports. You know, we had a whole podcast about conservatism and progressivism. The sports business, the sports games are actually quite conservative, even though a lot of things have evolved over time, but people are very resistant to making changes. I mean, think how long it took to uh, rely on instant replays in, in all these sports, even though the technology has been around for decades. I mean, right now, when you watch a baseball game, the computer will tell you if there's a ball or a strike. It's actually fairly accurate in how it can track the ball and exactly where it goes, you know, over the plate. But yet, we still have a human umpire behind the plate calling balls and strikes. We have a football where a human puts down the football to say where it was the forward momentum, right, to call for a potential first down. We can easily have a sensor or cameras that show exactly where that football goes, right? Soccer is another example. It's not necessarily a high-tech solution, but you, we still have one ref in the middle of the field in soccer. It's like, just add a few more refs. It seems like a fairly <laughs> easy solution. Why is it so resistant to making these changes is sort of beyond me. Ah, uh, it's tradition. It's tradition. You know, speaking of sports, baseball is a sport where, as far as I know, there's a higher proportion of lefties than there are in the general population, which leads me to talking about lefty-righty biases in general and one of my bigger pet peeves. Why the heck are forks on the left-hand side of the plate in Western culture when the vast majority of the population is right-handed and eats with their right hand? I'm not really sure. I was, I think I was told once as a kid it was because right-handed people can't figure out how to use a knife with their left hand. So you have to put the fork on the left to put the knife on the right. But yet I've seen a lot of people who do that. And then, of course, they have to switch hands and put the fork back in the right hand to eat. Personally, I don't do that. I cut with my right hand to eat with my left, but. <laughs> Great. Now, now you've ruined something for me. I don't know if I've ever told you this before. Literally, the only way I was ever able to keep track of which side of the plate is the right way is because I had once heard that Queen Elizabeth I, who happened to be a lefty, set the standard. And ever since, people have just accepted the status quo, even though it makes no sense. And. Uh, that I was able to remember. So now I'm probably not going to be able to set the table right anymore. Yeah. So. <laughs> and again, I don't I can't verify the history of this, but it does appear to be this sort of long history of bias against left handedness in general. I mean, even even the language we use, I mean, I don't know a lot of French, but I do know that in French, you know, the word gauche literally means left. And the word gauche, you know, also means like awkward and clumsy and things like that. It's like one of the several words that seems to come from old suspicions or negative associations surrounding the left side or use of the left hand. 
Even the word awkward comes from the Middle English word awk, which means turn the wrong way or left handed. You know, on the other hand, adroit, which, by the way, came in from French and it's adroit to the right. So it's exactly opposite of gauche. And it was, you know, the same right left thing. Adroit and dexterity have their roots in words meaning the right or on the right side. And of course, we can't ever forget that sinister comes from, if I got the Latin correct here, sinestra, which is the Latin word for left handed. There are a lot of examples of this kind of bias from prejudice. I mean, why is a beaver dam natural, but a skyscraper artificial? They're both constructed by animals looking to change the environment to better suit their needs. Although, admittedly, humans do it bigger and more often. Well, it's the same when we talk about things like genetically engineered food, right? A lot of people consider that bad, but food resulting from centuries of, you know, haphazard or intentional crossbreeding is somehow good. <laughs> It's not as if you can't find plenty of natural things that look and taste like food, but will injure or kill you if you eat too much of them or don't prepare them right. Okay, let's move on to our seventh pet peeve. And this one actually relates to the very first podcast we did on capitalism and understanding that. Because as we discussed, you know, rational decisions by buyers and sellers are related to having perfect information. So it's always bothered me that things like mandatory fees when it comes to buying products are not included often in product, whether it's a tax or some other type of mandatory fees, because by not including those fees in the posted prices, we're effectively creating sort of an asymmetry of information between the buyer and the seller, and it causes us to make irrational purchase decisions. Now, any individual purchase, it's probably a very small inefficiency, but collectively, it actually make a big difference to our total output in capitalism if actually we could make those rational decisions and we included all of the fees in any purchase. It's funny, I was reminded of this on a recent trip to Europe, how in many places, taxes and tips are included. Although it's not true in all countries, but in the ones it does, it really works a whole lot better. So I postulate capitalism itself would actually work better. We'd have more aggregate growth through a better allocation of resources if full cost of things were more transparent. Speaking of something I think should be mandatory, why are elected bodies allowed to appoint people to replace members who have departed rather than be required to hold an election? The law, at least in California, allows for either approach. And interestingly, most elected bodies will default to what I consider to be exactly the wrong answer, appointment. They'll claim it takes too much time to hold an election, which isn't true. You know, and Mark, and you and I have actually discussed this when we, we were serving together, and, and often we didn't always agree, and I know this is a big issue for you, but isn't it a valid claim that holding an election is expensive and, and therefore it would take money away from a public agency which may not have a lot of money and, and what it has to do with, you know, and, spend, and spending that money on its otherwise core functions? You're right, Seth. Elections do cost a public agency money. And admittedly, special elections, the ones that you don't plan for, cost more because the cost of running the election isn't generally being spread over a whole bunch of communities holding multiple elections simultaneously like they do on a regular election day. It's an economy of scale issue. But saving money? That's like McDonald's announcing they're going to save money by not including beef patties in their hamburgers. The whole point of a hamburger is that it has a beef patty. And the point of any election is so that voters, the people ultimately in charge, get a say in who makes decisions on their behalf. It's kind of sort of the whole point of the system. Okay, Mark, I, I get your point on that one. And since we're talking about elected bodies, I'm going to add a pet peeve as my number eight from our time on the school board. And I've actually included an article in our resources section of our website on this one, too. So this is about an expression that so many people in education contexts use, which is they use this expression called away from the classroom, like make cuts away from the classroom, make changes away from the classroom. I mean, we hear it all the time. 
The point is interesting and well-meaning because the idea is do things that don't directly affect an individual classroom. But it seems to me that's a false choice. It's a convenient political talking point and ultimately just pandering to voters without explaining how a school district works, right? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, teachers are critical, but there's so many other positions that provide leverage for the work done in the classrooms, whether it's counselors, librarians, music teachers, coaches. They all help educate children. They make the school environment better and actually make the core classroom teachers more effective. I would say the same thing about administrators, even though people think it's a dirty word, right? But administrators help create the effective curricula, right? They provide professional development for teachers, right? And so this led to this political reality where, particularly in California, where as a state, we spend the lowest in quote unquote administration costs, right, than almost every other state in the nation. You know, even the language in parcel taxes and bond measures, as I recall, will often say things like or have a phrase like with none of this money going to administrator salaries, which, again, is just sort of silly pandering in a world where you have to remember money is fungible. So, yeah, those dollars didn't go to what you don't like, but those other dollars did. <laughs> That's right. I mean, and I've always said that we clearly need to support and pay our teachers more. But I was probably fairly unique in terms of elected officials who I'd go in front of a crowd. and I'd say we need to spend a lot more administration as well in California schools. Frankly, at the end of the day, you shouldn't spend any money except when it's getting you something that you want. And whether you spend it on administrator salaries and enable teachers and leverage teachers to, to do more or whether you spend it on teachers, the goal is still the same. And it's why should you artificially constrain how you spend the money? You know, before running for office, I, like a lot of people, rarely interacted with uh, the elected bodies who made the rules. I followed it as a community member. So I have to admit, I was kind of really unprepared for how odd some of the approaches to that kind of interaction are for people who do make it a point to interact with the government on a regular basis. For example, many people, when I was an elected, would pitch me an idea to do something that would improve the community. But it just so happened to benefit them personally. Yeah. <laughs> in, in fact, I'd have to say most of the improvement ideas that were pitched to me over my two-decade elected career were really just expressions of self-interest. Right. So they just sort of dressed them up to look like a community benefit. That's right. I, I used to jokingly tell people they could really get my attention for their idea if they first showed me how it was bad for them personally. Those ideas I would prioritize for action. <laughs> Did you ever get that from anybody? <laughs> you know, I think I got one or two, but that was about it. <laughs> you know, another example is that often cited phrase that constituents will use when they're pitching something. Everyone agrees with me on this. Really? You've managed to discuss your idea with at least half of the registered voters in San Carlos, about 8,000 people at last count, and they agree with you? I'm really impressed. <laughs> That perspective ignores the fact that almost nobody has the time and resources to discuss something like that with that many people. But even on the very local level, it also ignores the very real social concept of, quote unquote, agreeing with someone just to be polite. It reminds me of the Japanese word for yes, right, which is hi, you know, which is different from yes, I agree with you. Or in the Japanese case, it's sort of yes, I acknowledge you said that, you know, something altogether different. <laughs> That's right. But I have to say my favorite thing was people who would, in effect, in making their arguments, assert that civilization itself would collapse if we didn't do whatever it was they were urging. Yeah, like when we looked at a hilltop neighborhood in town and people would say that whole area would be destroyed forever if a public school was built there because of how poorly behaving students would be, right? Because, you know, San Carlos is really known for its really rowdy 10-year-olds. <laughs> 
Yeah, I used to tell people I had no idea how fragile Western civilization was until I was an elected official. There were mornings that I would wake up and just give thanks for the fact that it hadn't dissolved into chaos while I was sleeping. <laughs> okay, Mark, for pet peeve number nine, it's going to be a little more serious because it's going to be about religion. We did talk in the previous podcast about how the, quote, war on Christmas is sort of this made-up fear tactic, right, from those on the right to build support through fear and what we define as a false externality. But I want to give a perspective as a non-Christian, right? I can say with certainty that most of you Christians, Mark, right, are really blind to how omnipresent Christmas is and how in general Christianity is in this country. I mean, you and I live in a town named for a Catholic saint, <laughs> right? So when you've grown up in this country as a non-Christian, you particularly realize how embedded Christianity is into the fabric of the country, but it, on a weird way, doesn't it seem to be on its face to be unconstitutional, right? Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. Uh, I'm not sure that's how our current crop of justices views things, uh, sadly. Yeah, because, I mean, I always looked at it as like, you know, for example, Christmas as a national holiday, how is that not a direct violation of the First Amendment? I mean, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but it seems a bit ironic that the same people who say you need to take the Second Amendment quite literally don't seem to apply that logic to the First Amendment. And there's so many other examples where we clearly violate the First Amendment just because we're used to us being a Christianity-centric culture. You know, Seth, it sounds like maybe you do want a war on Christmas after all. <laughs> oh, I could only wish. <laughs> well, now that we've opened the door to talking about religion, thanks for doing that, and you get to deal with any angry listeners for, for having done it. If there is an all-knowing and all-powerful God, why do bad things happen and why does evil exist? And please, don't waste my time and yours by referencing that old, quote, it's a mystery, unquote, argument. So, so Mark, you don't buy the whole notion that God works in mysterious ways? Well, I don't, because if you stop and think about it, the existence of a mystery is itself a choice when one is all-knowing and all-powerful. A mystery is never required. Because an all-powerful and all-knowing entity cannot be subject to any kind of constraints or requirements. Everything that happens occurs deliberately. You remind me, uh, Mark, of what the famous astrophysics Neil deGrasse Tyson says about the existence of God. He also doesn't deny such existence, but he claims it's logically impossible for God to be both all-powerful and all-good. He could be one or the other, but not both. <laughs> I would have to agree with Dr. Neil on that one. Okay, Mark, now it's time for number 10, our last set of pet peeves. And for me, my last pet peeve is ironically about something we're doing right now, right? And airing our pet peeve episode. We chose our 10th podcast to do this, and we made the list 10 pet peeves long, right? Why did we do that? Now, this is not really a pet peeve per se. I don't really lie awake at night thinking about it, but I do find it funny how the human mind gravitates to what we think of as round numbers, right? All of which are multiples or powers of 10. Wow, we're going to end this podcast by agreeing on a pet peeve. I didn't think that was possible. <laughs> but I do want to point out, Seth, that in addition to 10, the number five holds a special place in our choice of numbers, too. Sure. I mean, and these round numbers are based on our standardization around base 10, right, as our numbering system. And base 10 only exists because we have 10 fingers. Yep. And five shows up more than it should in random discussions because I suspect each of our hands has five fingers. You know, this reminds me of a funny Dilbert strip back in the late 1990s when they weren't all about business issues. Dilbert was fretting with Dogbert about the upcoming end of the millennium. He was worried that based on certain Christian predictions and, and whatnot, that the world itself might end. 
Dogbert, being the ever-rational one, asked them why he thought God used base 10. Yeah, that's right. I mean, 10 is as arbitrary of a number as any other number. I mean, if we had eight fingers, then one zero would represent eight. And we would have done this podcast a few weeks ago. Or if we had 16 fingers, this podcast would still be lurking in the future. (laughs) Yeah, but we love our round numbers. So maybe it's just a way to remember things better, you know, putting things in decades and centuries and travel times and even numbers or something like that. You know, Seth, I guess you can say that a shared pet peeve we have is that we both felt obligated to do this pet peeve podcast as number 10 right now. Oh, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Okay, Seth. So did we sound in the end of the day? Did we sound like pissed off old white men? (laughs) Well, maybe a little bit. So for the next podcast, I'm going to have to go promise my wife that we'll get into something a little deeper and a little more intellectual. (laughs) Well, hopefully our listeners enjoyed this. And by the way, everyone should feel free to comment on this podcast or any of the other ones and send us your own pet peeves on our website at www.theboilingfrog.net. Well, those will be fun to read. So thanks all for listening. Signing off. This is Seth. And Mark. Hoping that you spend more time with your pets than your pet peeves. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.